This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today I'm very excited to be talking about the big garden birdwatch that's happening soon. I'm joined by Adrian Thomas, the RSPB's chief expert on gardening for wildlife. He's here to tell us what the UK's biggest crowd science project has uncovered thus far. And he's going to share why our gardens are so important to wildlife, as well as offering some simple suggestions on what we can do to help support birds in our garden. If you're interested, and it sounds like something you'd like to get involved in, the RSPB's Big Garden Birdwatch happens next weekend from the 27th of January to the 29th, and I'll be taking part myself. It's super easy, and you definitely don't need to have any prior bird knowledge to get involved. Just head to their site, rspb.org.uk, to find out how to take part. Here's Adrian explaining what to expect. The RSPB Big Garden Birdwatch into its 44th year. Oh, wow. And every year in the last weekend of January, we invite anybody and everybody to spend one hour counting the birds that they see in their garden or their local green space if they don't have a garden. It's been incredibly successful. It started out on Blue Peter, actually, as a children's oh, really? survey. And then we found out that adults wanted to take part too. So it quickly... <laughs> the way. Yes, indeed. Uh, we're always envious of what the kids get to do. Yeah, so it turned very quickly into a very large citizen science project to the point that it is now and has been for many years, the largest citizen science project running in the UK on any topic and the largest wildlife garden survey anywhere in the world. So um, that that's lovely. Okay, it's great for us as the RSPB that we get so much data in, but it's lovely that so many people want to take an interest in that and feel that it's worthwhile them spending the hour counting those birds and in doing so creating this snapshot of how well our garden birds are faring. And it's very useful on an annual basis, but it's even more useful. The more years that we do, the more data we've got to compare from one year to the next. And that's what really then begins to highlight the trends, the changes, things going up, things going down. And and can you give us a, a context of how important this is as a, as a study? Um, you've given us a taste of how, how big it is. Is it is it used by sort of ornithologists and scientists up and down the country all year? Is, is it a kind of really key piece of research? I think it's a key piece of research in, in a couple of ways. There are more detailed studies that go on. For example, the British Trust for Ornithology runs the Breeding Birds Survey, and that sends out surveyors into specific locations following very strict scientific protocols to get us an idea of our breeding bird populations. So I think that what the, the RSPB's Big Garden Bird Watch does, first of all, it does give us an amazing snapshot. When you have got in the order of, last year we had 700,000 people take part, 
in the middle of COVID, we, we topped the million mark for the number of people taking part. So suddenly you get a layer of detail and spread that no other survey can bring. So that's fantastic. But I never underestimate the visibility element of it either. It is for many people their first step into citizen science and their first step into nature recording. Uh, and the visibility that comes from that and the, the national press always covering in great detail how well the Big Garden Birdwatch does, in large part because so many people have taken part that they want to know how their results have translated into, into the story of how well our, our wildlife is faring. And it has that beautiful element to it that what they're counting, and I know we're going to go on to this later, the results that come out can help direct what people then do to change their own spaces to make them even better. And the, the beautiful kind of projection crystal ball for me looking into the future is there's, there's a point 10, 20 years down the line where numbers of some species go up because people have done the survey, they've realised what they need to, need to do to try and improve their habitat, and we get some some gains on the back of that and our, our garden wildlife becomes all the more healthy because of it. Yeah, so it's very unique in that way and that it's a, a kind of a type of experiment where we can kind of change the results and that's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's the big hope in, in all of this and it's the big possibility of it too. It's a really big opportunity. So so what are the kind of trends that we've seen doing this in the last well, 44 years but particularly say in the last decade or five years, what kind of trends emerge out of this data that you capture? I guess you're quite right in a way. There's some very long-term trends. So 1979, the first year that it was done, and over that long time period, we've seen things such as uh, the decline of the song thrush, which would have been a very familiar bird back in 1979, was in the top 10, and that's the lovely thing about Big Garden Birdwatch. We can talk about it in terms of topple of pops. Uh, and Yes, so many gardens would have had a song thrush in it and people would have looked out and recognised the brown speckly-breasted bird out in, in their garden. Now it's languishing way down the, the, the top 20 and the declines since 1979, an 80% decline. So four out of every five song thrushes that were in gardens in 1979, now no longer there. But even on a short-term basis for the song thrush, since 2012, so the last 10 years of the survey up till last year, it was more than a 50% decline just in those 10 years. So it doesn't take very long for really quite substantial, profound changes to be happening in some of our garden bird populations. The two species that really stand out in terms of decline in the last 10 years, a greenfinch and chaffinch. And I know that you're familiar, very familiar with, with both of those. Yeah. And it was greenfinch that kicked in first. That, that was the decline that was first noticed. So that decline has been going on for um, a little bit more than a, a decade now and has been pinned down, very topical in the light of COVID, it's been pinned down to disease and the transmissions of, of a disease called trichomonosis between greenfinches. Uh, it was thought that it leapt over from the pigeon tribe, pigeons and doves, who have long been susceptible to trichomonosis, but suddenly it leapt across the species into greenfinch, uh, and we've seen a plummeting like we've uh, rarely seen for any other species. And are there any, definitely, definitely, we will definitely get into trichomonosis and what um, you might be able to do to help those populations of finches are there any positives that have emerged out of the, the numbers from the, the bird watch? 
Yes, yeah, and, and that's always nice, isn't it? Um, doom and gloom is all very well and all very mobilising, but I think we all need some positive news. There are all sorts of bright spots in Big Garden Birdwatch. Things such as goldfinches have really done well in Big Garden Birdwatch, particularly over the last 10 to 15 years. Long-tailed tits, people love them. They're the cutest thing that there is. You know, it's like a, a tiny little fluffy ball with a long tail stuck on the end. Flying teaspoons is what people call them, but uh, my teaspoons aren't fluffy in the way that long-tailed tits are. Those are doing well and really interesting to explore some of the reasons why why they should be doing so well. There are some species that people might not be quite so pleased about, the rise of the wood pigeon has been dramatic over the course of Big Garden Birdwatch since 1979, a rise of over 1100%. So oh, wow. 12 times the number that there were back in 1979. And then you get the curiosities, those that might be going up, but now coming down or, or vice versa. Um, perhaps the biggie on that front is, is the collared dove. Didn't breed in the UK until the 1950s. Underwent this amazing expansion from its uh, original heartlands over in the Middle East and expanded all the way across Europe in the matter of a couple of of decades until it became a really uh, frequent garden visitor across almost the whole of the UK. Uh, Numbers absolutely ballooned. And now they're starting to go go down again. So it's not always a straight up or a straight down. It can be a more complicated picture than that. So in the case of the tits and the goldfinches, which I've been able to track many uh, goldfinches to my garden, and they're 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 beautiful, kind of ornate little things. What what do you think has been the 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 story behind their success at the moment? With goldfinches, in fact, as with almost all the birds, you find that the reasons it would be so lovely to pin it down to one thing, and it's often quite a complex of things. Uh, with goldfinches, there may be a climatic factor in place. A lot of goldfinches historically would have migrated south to the continent. Not all of them, but many of them would have done and would have struggled to find enough seed in the British landscape, which was why that behaviour w- was in place. But with the emergence and diversification of garden bird feeding, then we saw things such as the introduction of niger seed, which is perfect for goldfinches. They've got a very fine beak. They're perfectly adapted to things such as probing into the seed heads of of teasels and pulling out a seed from the teasel that looks rather like a niger seed. But once niger seed was cultivated on a kind of commercial basis, suddenly there's this mass seed available to goldfinches. I remember a time when bird feeding was peanuts still in their shells strung up on a on a bit of elastic hung from a, a a bough or from a bird table and birds really needed to work hard to get into that food it was quite an energy demanding thing this is what you might call inconvenience food that we were putting out at that stage and now we're at, uh, we're at the point where you can not only put out shelled peanuts but you can put put out kibbled peanuts little bits of peanut or you can put out sunflower hearts so birds don't need to mandibulate love that word That's they don't word. yeah a bit bit long for scrabble but um you can <laughs> give it give it a whirl um that effort of, of taking a seed and having to uh wriggle it with your beak and somehow extract the goodness from from out the middle of it i don't know how they actually do it a lot of the time it's it's pretty clever with it with a hard beak to be able to uh, manipulate a seed in that way now a lot of birds 
know that they can get their kibble peanuts, they can get their sunflower hearts, they can get real variety, they can get it all year round because the advice changed from 20 years ago, which was feeding winter, to now a recognition that often the point of greatest need is the tail end of the winter. It's early spring when all of the natural food is really at its lowest point, but birds are trying to get into condition for singing and breeding and laying eggs. So all of those factors, I think, have really helped the goldfinches. And then once one bird or one population starts to adopt that behavior, then it spreads through that population and um, uh, that they they learn. They learn to find the good food sources. Yeah, I've noticed that the, the, the blue tits uh, and occasionally a, a long-tailed tits, they uh, much higher, but they do follow uh, in the footsteps of the, the finches, uh, at least in my garden. And so is that a good opportunity there? Is 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 that why um the garden bird watch is this time of year? Is that because birds are sort of sort of just going through winter, getting ready for spring, so they are gonna be at the feeders and that's the kind of most convenient time to spot them. I suppose in summer it's quite hard to see them in the trees. <laughs> My understanding is that nineteen seventy nine survey was set up because that was the point in the 70s when when you were encouraged to feed birds. So that was the point where you're looking out the window, the the trees are are bare, and you've got birds coming to your feeders. For many people these days, they'll have birds on their feeders all the way through the year. But as with all good science, you stick to what you started with to create the consistency of data going through. And for many people, well, you haven't got that desire to get out in the garden if it's cold or if it's wet so the chance to sit with your feet up with your slippers on cup of tea in hand watching the birds out the window um and i know how much pleasure that gives so many people as as well so uh, i think that's been a, a factor in its success that almost like like the mindfulness of of just taking an hour out to watch those birds seems to appeal very greatly to people yeah i've scribbled that word down here on my notes that i wonder if if its popularity is also down to the sort of uh, mindful act of just you know I, I personally in the morning sit with a cup of coffee and just watch them at the bird feeders squabbling and doing doing their thing and I think um, I wonder if, if that's been part of its appeal in recent years and I do exactly the same every morning as well it's it is my little soap opera out the window who's in who, who who's emerged overnight have they all survived at the moment i've got a great tit that's got a white tail coming into the garden so has white tails survived the night and um every every day there's there's something happening out there and i lose myself in a in a little bit of it for a while and um uh, it certainly works for me and i love the fact that the big garden bird watch is available to everybody you don't have to pay to do it you don't have to be a member to do it it's it's something that anybody and everybody can do it's it's inclusive in that way and before we go and talk about sort of the things you can do to sort of invite wildlife in, I just wanted to then ask about the the chaffinches and the greenfinches. So on the one hand, you have the sort of proliferation of, I suppose, of, you know, uh, readily available, easy to eat food, fast food maybe for birds. Um, why, why has that not helped uh, the likes of chaffinches or um, greenfinches, do you think? And it probably did help them in the early days and people were encouraged left right and center put out food for the birds and we always had the message there of keep your feeders clean consider hygiene out there consider hygiene for yourself and and for the birds what we're finding is that some of these diseases are most readily transmitted at bird feeding stations and it's 
kind of quite easy to imagine why with uh, lots of birds gathering in one place. Now that happens in the countryside. You you only have to think of a, like a berry filled tree or uh, a stand of weeds that's gone to seed that will draw in birds, but they'll quickly exhaust that and have to move on to another site. And I think our human tendencies are once we've set up a, a feeding station, we keep it there and, and we we don't move it at all. And it's probably nicely placed for viewing from the window. It's had this side effect of just pulling in lots of birds who are desperate for the food. So in the first place, we're, we're doing good because um, the countryside, to a large extent as a generalization, is poorer for food than it was in the past. That's why so many of them are making a beeline for, for gardens. But now that recognition that we need to be even more mindful of hygiene within the garden situation. So the advice on that has really ramped up in only the last few years. The advice to move your feeders from time to time, to clean them on a on a regular basis. And if you see birds which look sick or diseased, and particularly with trichomonosis, what you see is fluffed up birds which are listless, that don't fly off when you you step out into the garden. If you see that, to actually take the drastic step of stopping feeding for a while to allow those populations to disperse. I think that the modern food types, the fast foods as you so wonderfully describe them, they're, they're a good thing because it means less spillage. So if you're feeding from a hanging feeder, trichomonosis tends to be transmitted through the, the birds struggle to swallow. It's a disease that constricts um, their ability to swallow. So they're often salivating and that saliva can be the tr- transmission method for the disease. So um, if, if birds are gathering on the, f- on the floor underneath where food is being dropped because it's taking time for birds to pick out the seeds that work west, best in their bills, then that's a problem. But if they're, every bit of food is readily swallowable, then there's less lying around on the food and underneath, less chance for birds to gather to feed on it. Yeah, so um, unfortunately, I had exactly that scenario where we spotted a little chaffinch fluffed up, uh, sort of really out of sorts, to the extent where we were able to go and um, pick it up in a little tea towel and take it to a, a rescue centre where they uh, told us that, that it had, had uh, trichomonitis, which is also called canker. I believe some people might have heard of it, but um, and there, yeah, you know, the sunflower seeds uh, were were popular with the goldfinches, but they do have a habit of spitting them out quite frequently, or bits of them. And so I think, um, and once we spotted that, we we essentially took everything down uh, to, as you say, let the birds disperse for a while. Uh, that was about a couple of weeks ago, but um, I think Niger seed might be a good good route back because they're a little bit tidier eaters with those. But also I realise lessons like moving your feeder around, as you said, because the ground stays wet in the UK for so long. Uh, and it's a disease that moves through moisture, doesn't it? Once it once the, the ground dries up, it kind of uh, doesn't tend to linger too often or for too long, I believe. And it means that bird baths are another prime transmission point. So uh, recognising the need for that hygiene. If you're going to... F- feed birds because you've got that instinct to try and help it's a brilliant instinct but it now needs to be added to that mix is is a real diligence when it comes to hygiene around bird feeding mm, and feeders and that can keep your, your your uh your food dry and also another lesson i've learned uh, which we did do to be fair but don't don't fill your feeders too much too too full so that you're kind of encouraged to change them often 
Yes, indeed. Yeah, that that message of only put out what gets taken is a very good one. And it's it's a shift in our bird feeding behavior as a nation. We're a brilliant nation at putting out food, but it just needs to have a, a little bit of a shift in how we do it now. And this, okay, yes, I do need to move the feeder from time to time. I do need to make sure there's not this constant gathering point. Maybe our experiences with COVID show us the, the the kind of little lengths that we need to go to just to ensure that we're not um, inadvertently causing harm through our kindness. So on the flip side of that, um, how, how important do you think a garden can be in in the picture of supporting wildlife? How, how do, do what kind of evidence or, or what do we know about uh, how vital our gardens can be? I love that as a question, because if you went back to when I started uh, in wildlife-friendly gardening 20 years ago, then we were still very much in the era where the attitude was that wildlife was found out in the wild places, and any creatures that lived in a garden were the common and garden wildlife. The term even existed back then, common and garden wildlife, as if it was like, didn't really have that much value to it. And there were various things that happened. I'm going to pick out uh, a couple of quick examples for you. One was uh, an amazing lady called Jennifer Owens in Leicester, who had uh, wonderful connections with all sorts of um, experts in different groups of wildlife. And she was uh, no mean wildlife expert herself either. And over a period of 30 years, she sought to find and identify every species she possibly could in her garden, whether it be birds, dragonflies, beetles, bees, whatever. In those 30 years, if I can remember correctly, I think she found 2,673 wildlife species in her garden, of which some were new to the UK. They were little parasitic wasps, but they were new to the... Nobody had found them ever before in a little suburban garden in Leicester. And I believe one of which was new to science, had never been seen ever before. And this kind of started a a revolution of, oh, right, we don't recognize the value of gardens for wildlife because nobody's ever really studied it properly before. It was taken up by my second example is Sheffield University, particularly the work by Dr. Ken Thompson that he did there, which was called the Biodiversity in Urban Gardens in Sheffield's Project, which those of you who are very quick-minded will notice is the BUGS study in its acronym. Uh, And he and his team and his students went out and studied gardens everywhere. And it kind of reinforced the message from Jennifer Owens that our gardens are far richer than people realise them to be. And I think that Big Garden Birdwatch then feeds into this as well, because the song thrush and the decline it's had in gardens, well, that's a decline that has been uh, just as marked in the wider countryside. The decline of house sparrows, the decline of of starlings, they're all red-listed species. They're all species of major conservation concern, and yet their primary populations are in gardens. You only have to think about swifts or house martins. They rely so much on the urban environment. So increasingly, there is this recognition that gardens have a double value for wildlife. One is that they genuinely have wildlife value. And the second is the connection with wildlife that people have. It's the place where the vast majority of us have our daily contact with nature and benefit from it. And when you bring those two things together, it really elevates the importance of gardens and their wildlife, I think, in in human life. It gives us an insight into, 
you, you hear about the climate and the nature crisis. Well, that's what you get to see a bit of outside your door, but you also get to see a bit of what you can do to put it right. What if you feel like you, you maybe live in the sort of heart of an urban jungle and, you know, you're looking around, there's not very many, very many, you know, green gardens or, 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 or with lots of vegetation. Can you, do you, or, or even actually, I suppose there might be, there probably are people listening who might live in apartments. Um, I myself only <laughs> got my first garden six months ago. Obviously, they can take part in the big, the big bird watch, like you said, in, in public parts. But can can they affect change, and can they be a vital sort of island in in their locations? Yeah, and the, I think the urban jungle that you're describing is the concrete jungle, isn't it? It's the dead. Yes, it's yeah. the dead jungle. Um, I believe quite firmly after after having spoken to so many people over the years, done so many talks and uh, and so much uh, research on this, that um, everybody has a part to play in this. Now, that's not to say that if you're in an apartment, you have a roof garden or you have a balcony garden, that um, you, you're certainly not going to get the range of species that you would if you had a, a large country garden. And each success that you have is going to be hard won uh every butterfly that visits every bee that visits but what we're finding out again because there's been this upsurge in research into the urban environment once it's begun to be recognized for the value that it has Af- after all the, the gardens in the uk are estimated to cover 460,000 hectares huge it's absolutely huge it's um uh, two and a half times the area of rspb nature reserves that we've we've got out there uh, of that kind of order of of scale so if we all do our bit all play our part it can all add up into the whole I, i'm a realist i, I recognize that not everybody's going to get out there and do everything possible in their space for wildlife and those spaces have to perform loads of functions for us as well but as many people as possible doing a little bit is genuinely going to have an impact particularly when there is such a, a problem across the landscape as a, a whole um, in terms of species declines. And even on a balcony, um, there's plenty you can do to put in plants for pollinators and have a balcony that is buzzing with bumblebees and solitary bees and, and many other creatures too. And the thrill that I see people get when they take a seemingly barren little place and convert it and do what 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 they can to make it for wildlife and then get some successes there. Yeah, their, their joy is unbounded. I imagine if, if this is someone's first garden bird watch, I imagine there's a bit of a competitive element. Are you, you count a few birds and you probably think, oh, I'd, I'd like to up that by next year. And I'd like to really, yeah, see how many, see how high we can go. What would your starting steps be? Where, where would you start to try and to, I obviously want to say it's good for all wildlife, but we're here talking about birds to encourage more birds into the garden. Uh, and the, the brilliant thing, I guess, is that the things that you do in the garden to benefit all wildlife will have an effect on birds because they're top of the, the food chain. Uh, so uh, even if your target is birds and increasing birds, doing things that will benefit a whole range of wildlife will actually feed into the, the, the mini ecosystem that you create. And uh, I think at its most simple, I have a, a number of key things that will have that broad range effect. 
And the first one for me is always about plants, which anybody who's a, a, a gardener will go, okay, you're giving me permission to grow as many plants as possible. Oh, yes, plants, plants, and more plants. Thank you very much. Uh, and that includes trees, shrubs, climbers, flowering plants. Whatever you can do to green up the space is going to be so much better than whatever happens to grey up the space. Anything that puts in place tarmac or concrete or decking or oh plastic grass any of those things are going to effectively seal the surface of, of our world and um and, and take it down a less biodiverse route so plants are a great starting point water is always invaluable in the garden environment for wildlife for birds it's it's bathing and drinking but it's such a hot spot for so much life in the garden and um uh, i'd like to think that Every garden could potentially have, if not a mini pond, which would be the most rich habitat water-wise, at least a bird bath in the garden is a, is a great starting point. I think recognizing the value of plants when they die, so as well as growing plants, um, don't have to be green-fingered, just give anything a whirl. Trees want to grow, plants want to grow, but when trees shred their leaves or you prune a plant or a, an annual has finished, that is gold dust once you've finished with it. And I'm always surprised how many people are quick to put that in the green bin and send that material away because it's a, a breeding ground for all the detritivores that eat, eat that material, all the wood lice, and, and that then fuels all the food chains above that too. So um, I, I, I have my log piles and stick piles and compost heaps, and um, I, I see that as a, a gift from the garden, all of that material embrace some of the decay <laughs> uh, uh, yeah absolutely gardens i think we have to recognize are often quite young habitats so birds that like to nest in holes for example whose original habitat would have been uh, mature woodland then they often don't don't have those holes so adding supplementary nest sites for birds to mimic more ancient habitats is a good thing and that can be your, your sparrows and your starlings and your swifts and your house martins just as much as your, your your tits. And then adding the supplementary food, but with all the caveats about hygiene that we've talked about. My next on the list is ensuring that you minimise as far as possible pesticide use, because pesticides are very much about taking out the base layers of the of the deck of cards, of the, the castle of cards of life. And you take out the, the base layers, then that that card castle is going to fall. Uh, and if I was to add a final one for folk, I'd say be ambitious. Uh, I think nature needs us to be ambitious these days. Yeah, those people who I've seen who've really gone for it in a garden, it really does have an impact. And um, uh, yeah, there are wonderful ways to, you know, you put up a bee hotel, why not put up three? Put up a bird box, why not put up three bird boxes for different species? Not planted a tree before? Do it, honestly. It'll it'll want to grow. So a couple of re real quick questions there, um, perhaps quite personal ones, because as someone who's just started doing this myself in my garden, there can be quite a dazzling array of bird feeders and bird tables and bird houses and bird things, um, which is good in a way because it shows there's an appetite for this sort of thing. Have you got any tips uh, there on the kind of foods to pick and the kind of feeders you should be looking for? Does it, does it even matter? Am I... Uh, as I like to do, overthinking it. it. It does matter. And I think that you do pay for what you get with these things. And for many people, trying to ensure that they feed the birds rather than necessarily the grey squirrels may be a key consideration for them. And um, yeah, to see pounds and pounds worth of bird food going down the squirrel's necks isn't always what people want to see in their garden. So I think that hanging feeders are definitely great 
for birds, particularly in light of the diseases that are out there. If you do feed on a flat surface, then you have to be extra special careful about hygiene because that really is pulling birds into uh, a close place where they can defecate and the saliva issues can occur. And if you have a squirrel issue and don't want to feed the squirrels, then having one of the squirrel buster type feeders, which are kind of weight loaded, or you can use those with a baffle that goes over the top of it to exclude the squirrels. So um, uh, I think considering all those things is really worthwhile. When it comes to bird boxes, my key targets at the moment are those birds which aren't doing so well at the moment, house sparrows, starlings, which need a slightly bigger hole than you normally get in a bird box for the house sparrow. So you need a 32 millimeter diameter hole for house sparrow. And when you get to a starling, it really is like a bird box on steroids. It's a 45 millimeter hole for starlings. And given that the starling decline is 82% since the beginning of Big Garden Bird Watch, I'd love to see that. Yeah. And 1979 it was kind of like almost like an irritation species it was it was number well, one in the charts my mum my mum is swarmed by them in her garden and big and this is this is going to lead me to a, a question but and it drives her mad because they're quite greedy quite <laughs> squabbly birds but with some absolutely stunning song um, yeah and they are quite beautiful close up i think um the, the the coloration and the their plumage is is incredible, but I know personally that they give her a headache. <laughs> um, uh, so I'm going to definitely feed on that she's helping a a, a species in in um, at, at risk and in, in, in decline. Um, but is that a little lesson there in sort of you sort of have to just go with the flow and not not just think about the you know she comes to my house and she said oh I'm so jealous you've got all these goldfinches. And actually be sort of, you know, be ready to unfortunately feed all those wood pigeons that that, uh, tend to squabble at the bottom. Is that something you encourage? Or or are there certain species, I suppose, like rats that we need to maybe just be mindful of when we're doing all of this? I, I think there's a mindfulness in whatever we do. And there's a personal choice element here too. So if people are absolutely thronged by starlings, then they have the choice, should they wish to, to get things such as uh, the guardian feeders, which are, you get the perspex tube in the middle, but then you get a wire cage over the outside, which only allows the small birds in. My feeling is that those who currently have lots of starlings, given the calamitous collapse in their populations, they're going to miss those starlings if those starlings go. And I've worked really hard um, I've been in this garden for eight years now, not a starling to be seen for the first four years. And I've now got my starling boxes up. And last year I had two pairs of starlings. And the joy that they brought from uh, the song and from that plumage, the name itself means little thing covered in stars. That's what starling means. Uh, and I can't tell you the pleasure that I've got of them being back and just that cocky chirpiness that they they bring to the garden. Uh, but yes, it, it's it's something that I think all of us, when we're feeding, when we're creating the garden, we can choose uh, and we can adapt our garden to fit what we're trying to do. I, I work quite hard in my garden to improve my butterfly populations. I know they're, they're a very attractive and immediate species and I, I love seeing them, but you plough your effort where your interests are. And I think what will happen and what is happening, so many people are embracing wildlife-friendly gardening these days. It's gone from being niche a little bit odd 20 years ago when I started to now every program that's on gardening just has to mention it. It's it's what we now do. Every Chelsea show garden talks about what it's doing for, for wildlife. So it's gone mainstream and I'm delighted 
uh, about that. But it still means that each of us can do it in our own way to fit everything else that we need our gardens to be. You, this isn't about making part of your garden good for wildlife. It's incorporating wildlife throughout your garden as well as the things that you need your garden to be. And each of us is so individual that we're all doing it our own different ways. And that is some of the wildlife glory of gardens. The diversity of habitats that we've created is one of the reasons why gardens are such a great place for wildlife. It, it's it's such a key place for common things like the blackbird, one of the most beautiful songsters that we've got. In Victorian times, blackbirds were almost exclusively a woodland species. And then they found that our garden environment with its scattered trees and scattered lawns is like, it's like a strange open woodland that has turned out to benefit and support blackbirds in a way like almost no other habitat. Is there um, a bit of a misconception around gardening for wildlife that it means, you know, just letting your garden go to the wild and just leaving it be and, you know, long wild grass and brambles? Um, is that is that how it goes? It is a misconception. And when I started, the concept of wildlife-friendly gardening immediately evoked in people's minds messy, scruffy. If you want a messy, scruffy garden, you can do that, and it's probably going to have plenty of value for wildlife. But if every garden was just abandoned, it, it would be a, a mass of, of bramble and nettle probably in, in only a few years. And those rules of what to put in for wildlife, plants and water, you can put them in in the way that you want to. Wildlife doesn't mind symmetry. Wildlife doesn't mind straight lines. You can have a longer area of grass in your lawn, but you can cut neat edges around the, the edges of it. So it, it kind of like picture frames your mini meadow, your pop-up meadow. So there are so many ways of having an attractive garden that's still good for wildlife. Pollinators, they love flowers. You can fill your garden with uh, those plants that are rich in nectar and pollen and produce the most colourful gardens. So there are so many ways to create a wildlife-rich garden. They can all fit with the, our needs within in the garden, and you can make that garden to fit your style, whether you want a cottage garden style or a formal garden style. It's just following those key rules of, of a plant-filled, water-filled, food-filled and shelter-filled garden for wildlife. If you can achieve that in whatever way you want to, you'll be doing a great job. That was Adrian Thomas there, the RSPB's Chief Expert on Gardening for Wildlife. Again, if you want to find out how you can get involved in the Big Garden Birdwatch, head to rspb.org.uk. It's super easy to take part, and I think it's a great activity to do with the kids. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius Podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine which you can find on sale now in supermarkets, newsagents, and on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com.